That hymn carries us back toward Gethsemane, back toward Calvary. We're reading in that sequence of our Lord's betrayal, his arrest, his sufferings from Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Remember that our Lord had been in the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, pleading with his Father, urging the disciples to rise and pray lest they enter into temptation. While he'd been speaking, the crowd had come with Judas at the head and the Lord Jesus had been arrested, testifying in verse 53, this is your hour and the power of darkness. We read from verse 54 that having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now, when they'd kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then, after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. O Lord God, down we go. And down and down, following our Saviour into the miseries, the sorrows, the sufferings and the death at Calvary. Lord God, as we consider his faithful love, his great power, his tender mercy, even as we see it now bright against Peter's denials, Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed upon him to follow him where he goes and to learn from him who is meek, who is gentle, who is lowly in spirit. Lord, hear our cry for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. As Christ is dragged from the Mount of Olives to the high priest's house, Luke compresses the narrative. What happens here? feels like it happens more quickly than almost any of the other Gospels. Everything is sudden, and in the course of these few hours, so much seems to happen. We need to remember, as we work our way through this section, that the, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is as much Lord in the courtyard as he was in the garden. It's more subtle but it's no less certain. And even the way that Luke speaks of him, the Lord's words and looks are significant. 
It is not then that having surrendered himself into the hands of his enemies, Christ is now simply a victim at the whim of his enemies. This is still the will of God. This is still the man about his father's business. This is still the man who goes deliberately just as it has been written of him. And so let's follow the course of these events, beginning with the fire, then listening to the talk, then considering the sound, tracing the look and marvelling at the tears. Start with the fire. They led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. This first part of Christ's trial might have been legally illegal, illegitimate. The Sanhedrin was not meant to sit at night And so there's something here that is already dodgy. It could be one of the reasons why he's brought to the Sanhedrin again once day has broken later on. In verse 66, the elders of the people, the chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council to get, if you will, the formal condemnation. But here he is in the high priest's house. And typically, that would have been a series of rooms around a central courtyard of some size. And Peter followed at a distance. What do you make of Peter following at a distance? In verse 33, he said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. In the garden, it was he who drew the sword and attacked the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear before the Lord Jesus stopped him and healed him. And here you have, if you like, something of Peter at this point in a nutshell. Peter follows. Peter follows. Having fled with the others in the garden, Peter has recovered something of his love and courage. I was actually quite upset reading some of the commentators on this passage, uh, how they seem to, to mock and make fun of Peter. And, and sometimes you see Peter, and, and Peter himself puts his, his follies and his failings on display in, in Mark's gospel, let alone in the, the other records that are recovered for us. But look at Peter. He's following. The others have stayed away with the exception of John, but Peter's love and courage mean that he is still trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but at a distance. If you see Peter's love in following You see his fear in the distance. His courage lies in the fact that he hasn't yet departed entirely. His cowardice lies in the fact that he is hanging back in the shadows. And I see Peter at this point already in something of a spiritual torment. He cannot walk away and yet he cannot draw nearer. He's the man who struck and fled. The man who now follows at a distance. And I think any Christian here knows something of that tension. It's a portrait of the lives of too many of us. If I were to ask you for a summary today of your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
looking back over your, your engagement, your testimony, the last week, the last month, I think I might be forced to say I have followed at a distance. I could have been much closer. I can't turn back, but I don't draw near. A fire then is lit in the garden against the cold. And as this crowd, this multitude, or at least some of them, press into the high priest's courtyard, Peter somehow gets in with them. Seems to be that John knew somebody on the inside and maybe they slipped in together. And the crowd gathers around the fire that has been lit for warmth in the middle of the courtyard while some of these other conversations are taking place with Christ maybe in one of the side rooms or perhaps even on a balcony. Peter followed at a distance. Peter sat among them. That's dangerous. It would have been less dangerous if Peter had been chained up with Jesus Christ. But Peter is at a distance from his Lord and he is sitting in this hostile environment. Some of the people who were there in the garden are now gathered around the fire. That is a dangerous place for one of Christ's people to be if they have not been watching and praying. And so there's an ominous sense developing. We've already had Christ's prophecy back earlier in the chapter that Satan wants to sift these men as wheat and that Satan has asked for them and that Christ has prayed for them and that Peter is going to have to return to him and he's made that boast and then they've misunderstood his instructions and then they've been sleepy and dopey and dozy in the garden. And now... Peter is there in the midst of his enemies. He hasn't watched, he hasn't prayed, and he's at a distance from his Lord. And that brings us to the talk. Now between Matthew and, and Mark and Luke and, and John as well, to be honest, you get a sense of, of a gathering with a growing intensity and a growing hostility. If you've ever seen one of those nature programmes where wolves pick up the scent of a wounded animal. You get similar scents from what's happening around the fire. I know there have been experiments done that suggest it. it's not true that sharks can scent blood in the water from miles away and they come in, but you've probably seen a feeding frenzy when the blood does start to flow and there's something of a feeding frenzy that begins to develop around the fire. There are three rounds in this combat. Round one, verses 56 and 57. Peter against a certain slave girl. She saw him as he sat by the fire. John tells us she was the gatekeeper, so she'd already let him in to the courtyard. And she's looking intently at him and she says, this man was also with him. Ever had somebody really look at you intently, scrutinise you? Are you really who I think you are? Most of us perhaps are, on the, are never on the receiving end of this, but have you ever seen somebody famous walking down the street and you weren't sure, first of all, who it was? And you, you did that double take, you said, oh, 
I think it's not usually where I see him, it's not usually where I would recognise him, but I think that's so-and-so. And perhaps you see somebody in that situation, they're gazing into somebody and say, are you, are you that person? This woman, this girl, she thinks that she has recognised Peter from somewhere, maybe letting him in, maybe she's seen him with Jesus before, but now he's under close scrutiny and it is uncomfortable. When someone gazes unblinkingly at you and looks at your face carefully, this one was also with him. <coughs> That's really potent language. All the way through the Gospels, Jesus is very much attached to those who are with him. He takes them to be with him. He chooses them to be with him. He takes them on the way with him. It's the language of discipleship. It's the language of close, long fellowship. And now this slave girl, and she's probably as young as some of you girls here. She's not a, she's not a sort of like matron who can terrify you like some you know, retired district nurse who can fix you with a gimlet stare. She's a little girl. And yet abruptly she identifies Peter. Surely you also were with him. Peter's not ready for it. Denies it flatly. Woman, I do not know him. The language of denial is the language of abandonment. Peter detached himself from Christ straight away. Peter dropped Christ like a hot rock. I do not know him. Remember, this is the man who had said, you are the Christ of God. And now, under the slave girl's questioning, he uses language that sounds a lot like the language that was used in the synagogue when they put somebody under the ban. It's the language of Jewish excommunication. We don't know him. We have nothing to do with him. And Peter steps back into the shadows in the hopes that no one else will go after him. Round two, verse 58. After about an hour had passed, Peter sweating in the courtyard, wondering if he's got away with it. Another confidently affirmed, sorry, this is verse 58. After a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Maybe Peter's getting cold again now. Maybe he needs to go back toward the fire because he's getting uncomfortable. And now somebody else, perhaps somebody who's been in the garden, thinks that they recognise him. And now he says, you are of them. And again, you get the language of association. You were with him. You are of them. And again, he denies it. Man, I am not. I am not with them. I am nothing to do with them. I am not associated with them. I have no fellowship with them. I have not participated in their mission. I do not bear witness to the things which they proclaim. That's what Peter says about Christ 
and the other disciples. Don't you find something like that easier the second time around? Bad habits always seem to form more quickly than good ones, don't they? You go to work. And someone says, aren't you one of those Christians? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I go to church. What did you do at the weekend? So you believe the Bible, don't you? What does the Bible teach about this thing that's going on? Oh, the, yeah, the, the, the Bible, it, it, you know, the Bible says it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a very good thing. It's, it's, not, it's not great. You know, different Christians have different perspectives on this, but I think we'd probably be inclined to say that maybe it's not great. How many sinful speeches and sinful silences have you and I indulged as God's people? Opportunities to say that we were with him and that we are with them. And yet what happens the next time that someone pushes that? We've already set the standard, haven't we? We've already inclined in a certain direction. We've already established the ground rules. You don't push me and I won't push you. I'm not going to intrude my faith into your sphere. I'm not going to bring what I believe into the public conversation. You keep off from me and I won't trouble anybody too much. And it's not so much that society trains us into compliant speech and into sinful silence. We train ourselves. Second time around, man, I am not with them. Don't associate me with that kind of thinking. We build our own momentum away from Christ. We establish the barriers at work, at school, in the family. We set the rules so that we don't have to identify ourselves too closely. And then round three. And the net is closing and the pressure is building and the time is passing. An hour has passed. And now another confidently affirms. The, the slave girl, she'd scrutinised Peter's face. She'd looked intently at him. She'd said, this man was also with him. And he'd said, no, nothing to do with me. Then a little while later, you also are of them. Man, I am not. But now the pressure increases. This is a confident affirmation. This is somebody who's saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely sure of it. You know, I've been thinking about it. I've been watching you. I've been listening to you. And literally he says, surely this fellow also was with him. In truth. I swear to it. In truth, this was a man was also with him, for he is a Galilean. Perhaps what Peter said up to this point, or some, some muttered conversations around the fire, maybe food's being passed around, and someone's been listening in, and he's been given away by his speech, and now it's a definite identification. Someone says, there's no question in my mind, this man is is with this Jesus and with his gang, and his very speech betrays him. Why is the form of words important? Because this man is saying, this is true. And Peter has a chance to stand for what is true. 
And Peter totally rejects the connection. Man, I do not know what you are saying. Mark tells us that he did this with cursing. That is, he was probably saying the equivalent of, God damn me. God bring down his judgments upon me if I'm really one of them. May God do so to me and so much more. You know this kind of denial. You might have done it at home or at work or with a friend. No, I don't even know what you're talking about. I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. I don't know what you're saying. What, what you've just claimed is so far removed from being true that I can't even calculate the kind of thing you're on about. That's where Peter's at at this moment. I just haven't got a clue what you're trying to communicate. You seem to imagine that I am with them. I want you to understand that that's so far removed from the truth that I don't even understand the question. And again, the commentators line up to damn Peter. I know he's wrong, but I can't just cast him out because I know how many times I've done what Peter has done with a slave girl or another man or somebody who confidently affirms. Have you? Is your life littered with sinful speech and sinful silence where you have done everything in your power to keep a safe distance between you and Jesus Christ. You follow, but at a distance. And when the time comes to stand up and be counted, when the moment arrives to plant a banner for the truth, when the time comes to wear your livery with pride, when the time comes to march into battle, you have backed off and slithered away. The best saints are poor and weak creatures. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. How many times have you held your tongue when you should have spoken? Or spoken so as to create a distance rather than to raise a standard? Because you didn't watch and you didn't pray lest you entered into temptation. You've lived following Jesus, but at a distance. And when you're plunged into the midst of the crowd, you're already at a disadvantage. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. That's the sound. There's the compression in the narrative. Here's the tension. Here's the immediacy. While he was still speaking... It's like having a conversation and the fire alarm goes off and it begins to cut across your words. A sound rises into the lightning sky because dawn has now arrived. The cock is crowing. The man who had said, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death, has said, I don't know you. I've got nothing to do with you. 
And I don't even understand how you can imagine that I have any connection with that man. The boast was empty. The disciple had crumbled. You have to assume Peter heard it. Perhaps something in that sound penetrated Peter's panic. He's looking around now. The sweat's beading on his brow, not because the fire's too hot, but because the pressure is on. Peter's calling down condemnation on himself in defense of the fact that he has nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. And he hears the cock crow. And he looks up. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That's the look that we need to concentrate on. Was Christ still over on one side? Was he perhaps on a balcony if it was a bigger building? Was he being dragged now across the courtyard from phase one of this interrogation? But it's a look that pierces Peter. Simon the boaster dies when Jesus looked at him in the dawn light. I cannot describe the look that Jesus cast across the courtyard at Peter. It may be, it's difficult to put together the narrative, it may be that our Lord's face is already battered and bloodied from the assaults of the night. And yet his eyes, at least at this stage, are still open enough for him to cast a recognisable glance at Peter. How would you look at somebody who deserted you in your hour of need? How would you look at somebody for whom you were about to lay down your life, who has just said three times in the most emphatic language, I don't know him, I'm not with him, and I have nothing to do with him? I think I'd be angry. I think if I was standing with courage and I was aware of that cowardice, I think I'd be inclined to look with disdain, even with disgust. Perhaps some kind of unholy hatred stirring in my soul. This is what I'm doing for you and this is what you're doing to me. And I can't imagine there's anything of that in the look with which our Lord catches Peter's eye. There is love and there is grief. There is profound compassion and there is profound disappointment. And perhaps it's a measure of just how caught up in this moment, just how tormented Peter is, that it is only then that Peter remembered the word of the Lord. One of the other gospel writers tells us that Peter had had a first warning. That the cock crowed first before the third denial. And that doesn't seem to have penetrated. It didn't put the brakes on Peter. But this look, this look cuts through the panic. This look cuts through the pride. This look cuts through the bluster. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Remember we said Christ is still working out his purposes. He is still the Lord. 
Even as battered and bruised, he casts a look across the courtyard at his disciple, who is denying him three times. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said. I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. True repentance starts when we remember the word of the Lord. People go through life doing what they want, thinking what they want, feeling what they want, going where they want, indulging what they want. They live as they please. It's not always a particularly happy life. There's pleasure, but no real lasting joy. But still they do what they do until the truth is brought to bear upon them, until they remember the word of the Lord. Some of us were brought up in Christian homes We knew truth. We'd heard it over and over and over again. But there came a point in time when we remembered what God said. It bit into our souls. It gripped us in a way that it had never done before. Maybe we were sitting under a particular sermon. Maybe the the Holy Spirit brought to our remembrance some truth that we had known. Maybe under the influence of the Holy Ghost there was an accumulation of truth that finally broke through our pride and our ignorance. But it was then, it was then that we realised what we had done. Then that we understood how we had acted. Then that speech gripped, uh, that the speech of our lips gripped our souls. My friends, even as Christians, don't you sometimes look back and there are things that you've done, words that you've spoken, that suddenly spring back because you've heard the word of the Lord. Maybe you're reading through the scriptures. It might be as simple as working your way through the Ten Commandments. It might be reading through James chapter 3 and the word of the Lord is undeniable. And you think, I've said this, I've done that, I've acted like this. And this is God's word exposing my heart. This is God's word revealing my sin. And that's where true repentance begins because we begin to look at ourselves and to hear ourselves and to assess ourselves in the light of what God has said concerning us. And Peter, when he hears this sound, he looks up and Christ is looking at him with love and with grief and with compassion and with disappointment. And those are the lips out of which the words had come. Peter, you are going to deny me three times before the cock crow. Not me, Lord. Don't worry. I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. I proved it at least a little bit in the garden where I attacked a whole mob with just my sword. And what happened, Peter, when a little girl said, you're with him? And a man around the fire said, You're with them. And someone else looked at you and said, everything about you confirms that you belong with this Jesus. And you said, no, no, no. I don't know him. I am not with them. And I don't even understand what you're talking about. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And those words echo now afresh in Peter's soul and they bring him to the tears. He went out and wept bitterly.
We're not quite sure how he got out. Maybe the crowd is beginning to move. Maybe our Lord is being led on to the next phase of his sufferings. But somehow Peter exits the courtyard. Maybe he just bursts into tears where he stands. Maybe he tries to find a quiet place. Maybe he walks down a a side alley. The sounds of his sobbing echo into the dawn. Do you remember what he'd said when he first came across Jesus of Nazareth? Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And now he's weeping because he didn't know the half of it. After everything that Christ has done, after every warning he's received, after all his boasts, after all his claims, he's crumbled. Peter now knows his weakness in a way that he's not known it before. Peter feels his sin. Peter is racked with grief and with shame. At that point, you might not see very much difference between Judas and Peter. What is the difference? The difference is Jesus. Judas doesn't believe Jesus. Judas has no faith in Jesus. Judas doesn't actually believe that Jesus is Messiah. Judas has no grasp on the goodness and the mercy of God in Christ. So when Judas realises what a great sinner he is, Judas despairs. But Peter, Peter's just looked into Christ's eyes. Christ has looked into his soul. Peter has seen his love with his grief. Peter knows that this Jesus has prayed for him, that his faith should not fail. Peter has said, not if, has heard, not if you return to me, but when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. What is the difference between Judas' despair and Peter's repentance? It is trust in Jesus Christ. It is the knowledge of his truthful words. It is this dependence on his prayerful love. Peter said, Jesus, you are going to have to learn to stoop rather than to strut. You are going to learn to trust and not to boast. And the words and the looks of the Lord mean that even this is not the end for Peter. You see, the Lord Jesus is not looking for great and strong men. The Lord is strong. The Lord is merciful. And the Lord uses weak men and broken men. The Lord forms them on his anvil under the hammer of his dealings with them in order that they may be fit to do his holy will. Are you following Jesus? How close to him are you? Too many of us, I fear, are following our Lord at a distance. How do we tell? What happens when the challenges arise? 
what happens when the opportunities come. What happens when we feel the weight of responsibility? Sinful speech. Sinful silence. My friends, some of you might say, I've, ne I've never actually denied him. You can deny Christ by your silence as much as by your speech. What do people think about you? I ask myself, do my neighbours know anything more than that I'm a preacher who goes out dressed funny on a Sunday morning? Do my friends know that I am an unashamed follower of Jesus Christ? Does anybody who lives around this building know more about Jesus because I come here? Remember that Luke isn't just writing into the vacuum. He's writing for a man called Theophilus. This made me think of Theophilus again. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Theophilus, are you with him? Are you for him? Do you stand for Christ, Theophilus? Maybe he needs to ask, what do I know certainly? What do I know of a truth? And am I ready to stand fast, depending on Jesus Christ, and to be an unashamed disciple. I may not be able to say or do any more than Peter did today. Maybe all I need to do is to weep because of the looks and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Weeping because of my sin and weeping because of Christ's grace. At this point, you might say, what will the outcome be? My friends, we know the outcome. We're not poised on a knife edge here, asking, will Peter fall and fail utterly? No, we're marvelling at the love and the faithfulness of a Christ who saw this coming. And he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brothers. And Peter boasted, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And the Lord replied, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And Peter has remembered Christ's prediction that he will stumble and Peter needs to remember Christ's assurance that he will rise again 
Peter needs to lay as much emphasis, to rest as much weight, to grasp as firmly to the fact that Christ has prayed for him, that his faith should not utterly fail, and that when this trial is passed, and when the dross has been consumed, the gold will be refined, because, brothers and sisters, our falls and our failings are not the end of our usefulness. And you can go back into whatever environment you have been in where you have fudged it and you have avoided it and you have diluted your testimony. And you can say, God helping you, that from now on you will speak more clearly, more openly, more transparently, more warmly for Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that everybody is going to go out on the doors this afternoon and start knocking on their neighbours' doors to tell them about Christ. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to stand up the next time we go into the open air and preach. But it does mean this, that the next time someone says, are you with him? Is he with you? That you will remember Peter and you will remember Christ. And you will say, I want to be known as one who is with him, one who is for him. But for now, Jesus is alone. Peter's weeping in the shadows outside the door. John, too, seems to be at enough of a distance. Why is it that the Lord Jesus is still standing? Why is it that amidst the pressures that he's facing, he's going to have to answer the question soon. Verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. His disciples have deserted him. One of them has betrayed him. One of them has denied him. He is now entering into the darkest and most painful of his experiences. They are going to mock him. They are going to beat him. They are going to scourge him. They are going to spit on him. They are going to pummel him. They are going to brutalize him. And they are going to hang him on a cross. And they are going to ask him, what is the truth? Are you the Christ? The Lord Jesus never boasted. The Lord Jesus only prayed. Lord, if it is your will, Father, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He had said to the disciples, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. He had prayed. He had pleaded, he had wrestled with God. He had yoked his soul, not to his own human strength, but to the divine word. And God having spoken to his son, it was the word of the almighty God that carried him forward into his sufferings and his sorrows. He goes as it is written. Mere men are now falling away, but the word of the Lord stands forever.